Our Father, once again, who are we that we have an opportunity and a privilege of opening up the pages of your holy word? And yet you have given us the freedom in this country and um, in this place to be able to open up your word and to hear from you. We remember that every time we open up your word, it's the word of the living God, infallible, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, and that, Lord, you have the final say in all things. We thank you for that, and I pray that we might be humble listeners who, Lord, take these things and apply them to our lives and our thoughts and our mindset, to our affections, and to our will, that we would follow through in obedient action. Father, give me conviction, courage, give me clarity, and give me compassion, Lord. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles just by way of introduction to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We'll make our way over to Colossians 3 in a minute. But, you know, I think that I want to begin here this morning because I think we oftentimes, even in the midst of parenting, we missed a big picture of that which God has called us to do and to be, even as parents. I think the busier life gets and the more complicated life gets as our families grow, oftentimes we can miss the forest from the trees, so to speak, and miss lose sight of the big picture and what God has called us to ultimately do for His great name. And here in Exodus chapter 12, what you have is you have God preparing the nation and preparing Moses for his deliverance from the hands of the Egyptians that's going to take place in Exodus chapter 14 in a couple of chapters. And one of the things that God wants Moses to institute is this feast called the Passover. And the reason for the feast is to commemorate what he's about to do in delivering the, the, the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians. God wants to, to make sure through many different ways... And and here, through this celebration of the feast of the Passover, um, that his people not forget his greatness and his majesty and his glory. But not only that, but that this generation that is going to behold his deliverance would also pass on the greatness of his name to other generations that follow. And I want us to see this in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 26. Notice, it says, And when your children say to you, What does this rite, meaning the Passover, mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. See, God wanted the nation to institute this Passover so that they would remember his mercy shown to the Israelites. And that they would commemorate the fact that by a great act of power, he plundered the Egyptians on behalf of the Israelites. God wanted to be known. But he didn't only want the the present generation to know him. He wanted them to pass this on to their children so that when their children asked about this Passover and other things and what those things meant, the Israelites were to answer uh, and, and point to the greatness of who God is. Look at Exodus chapter 13. With me, just a couple of pages over. Exodus 13 and verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And then verse 14. 
And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So the parents, when uh, uh, when asked by their children concerning the Passover and other things, the parents were to tell the children about the greatness of God. And to reiterate what God had done. Not only who God was or is, but also what He had done in His great deliverance for the nation. And to pass it on to the next generation. Later on, if you go to Joshua with me, chapter 4. I want you to see this. Joshua chapter 4. This is after Moses dies. And Joshua now has, has assumes the role of leader of the Israelites on behalf of God. And this is after the second miraculous deliverance. Now, the parting of the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3. And again, what does God want the people to do? He wants to be remembered now for this great act as well. And so in Joshua chapter 4 and verse 4, Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this, these rocks, these stones, be a sign among you. So that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Look at verse 21. Joshua said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God, notice, this is now the children's God here. The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So notice, beloved, not only does God want the present generation of Israelites, first generation of Israelites in in Exodus, then the second generation of Israelites in Joshua now, who just crossed the Jordan to know his greatness and his great acts, but he wants them to pass on the truth of the greatness and the majesty of God to the next generation as well. And not only that, but according to verse 21, also that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. These are just some examples, beloved, of how God wants to be known, not only in the present, but to be known by generations to come. It is the case even today. He wants to be known by the next generation and the agents in the hands of God, who are to bring those truths to to bear upon the lives of the next generation, are primarily, first and foremost, parents, and then the church also involved in that, so that the next generation may know God. This is what parenting comes down to, beloved. 
Exposing our children to the greatness of God. This is our main goal. And we know where God reveals Himself most accurately and beautifully, do we not? It is in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 6 points to. That we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, as last week we, we, we said at the last 15-20 minutes of the message, we must continually be bringing the gospel to bear upon our children because Christ is the centerpiece of the gospel. We must be informally and formally bringing the truth to bear upon our kids. Because, listen, parenting and training our children goes far deeper than behavior modification or external moralism. While God calls us to teach our children to honor and, and to obey us, yes, we recognize ultimately that the goal is that they would come to know and to, and to love and to obey and to serve Jesus Christ, do we not? Well, how is that going to happen? By bringing the gospel to bear upon their lives in a loving manner with compassion and tenderness. Remember that were it not for the grace of God, we too would be in the same place. Amen? This is the bigger, glorious picture, beloved. Teaching our kids the greatness of God. Teaching them about the gospel. And the centerpiece of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we've been, we've been seeing this from Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. We're there, if you turn there to Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives two commands in verses 20 and then in, tw- in verse 21 regarding the parent-child relationship. We saw in command number one in verse 20 that he said this to children. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. But now in verse 21 is the second command. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Fathers are not singled out here because mothers are exempt but because fathers are ultimately responsible as the head of the home and accountable to God for the shepherding of our families. But this command would also, by extension, apply to the mother as well. Because he says in verse 19, children, be obedient to your what? Parents. That would include the mother as well. So while the the father is singled out as the one who is ultimately responsible as the head of the home, the shepherd of the home, the one who will render an account to God for our families, this command is ultimately for both parents. Now I want us to examine the second command, beloved, that is so, so important for us as parents to pay attention to. In particular, in verse 21, and also the parallel verse in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 that says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We saw the positive side of, of, of verbally instructing and even physically at appropriate ages and, and for, for the purpose of correction and motivated by love that children are to be disciplined as well. That is the positive side. But he also gives the negative side in Ephesians 6, 4 of not provoking our children to anger. So both that and Colossians 3.21, listen, are a warning to parents. This is a warning to us parents, beginning with us who are fathers, as the head of our households. And as we look at this warning, I want us to see a couple of things. I want to highlight the seriousness of the warning. And I want to highlight, secondly, the application of the warning. The seriousness of the warning and the application of the warning. So let's look, first of all, at the seriousness of the warning. 
He says in verse 21, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. That's a command given to parents beginning with fathers. It's a present tense command. And you may, I think it's appropriate to even translate it this way. Fathers, stop exasperating your children so that they will not lose heart. The present tense here really highlights the fact that this is a reality in the life of a parent. That This is something that we do as parents. We exasperate our children. To exasperate means to excite in a negative way. To spur on in a negative way. To, to irritate. To cause to embitter or to make someone resentful. It can be translated to arouse someone to anger. It is somewhat parallel to the exhortation to husbands. If you look at verse 19, that husbands not be embittered toward their wives, but that they would love their wives. The idea there is of being embittered is that husbands ought not to be harsh toward their wives, but instead love their wives. It's parallel to that particular instruction there as well. This is a serious warning to parents and especially to fathers, isn't it? And the reason, beloved, for the warning, as you and I can attest from our own experience, is that it is not uncommon for you and I to relate sinfully to our children. Just as we dealt with the fact that children from the the very womb are, are wicked and sinners by nature, and they just flesh that out in their experience, so we, as parents from the womb, are also totally depraved. We are sinners by nature. And so thus, that means that we are imperfect creatures. We are imperfect people. And so, one of the ways that our sin will show itself, even with regards to the family and as parents, is that we will misuse our God-given authority. We will sin against our kids. While God has given us authority as parents, and authority is not a bad word, even though our culture would look at it that way. Authority is a good thing given by God for His glory and for the good of our children in the case of parenting. But oftentimes we fail, beloved, to use our God-given authority for the glory of God and for the good of our children, and we sin against them. We misuse our authority, and we, we lead our children to discouragement. That's what he means by verse 21, so that they will not lose heart. The idea that they will get discouraged, dispirited. They will, they will, they will lose hope. They will despair. Instead of seeing their growth and their future as hopeful, they would see it as a, as a future that, uh, of despair. And many of us as parents can sin against our children by, by contributing to that sense of hopelessness and despair. Or on the other hand, we may use our parental authority to, to incite our children to anger. Look at chapter 6 of Ephesians with me. Chapter 6 of Ephesians and verse 4. He says there, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here he is warning parents as well. It's a parallel command to Colossians 3.21, especially fathers, that sinful treatment can lead to a deep-seated anger and bitter resentment in the heart of a child. And that Anger left unchecked and unresolved will eventually uh, manifest itself or show itself either in outward hostility 
Outbursts of anger, hitting of walls, hurting people, if you will. Or on the other hand, indifference and avoidance altogether. Both of those manifestations, either outward hostility or indifference and avoidance, are both rooted in deep, bitter anger, beloved. And different children manifest this in different ways. We can attest to that. Now, it is not that most parents intentionally mean to cause harm to their children, right? How many of us desire to cause harm to our kids? How many of us who were parents before had our kids under our roof desire to harm them? When I interact with parents, by and large, parents are not looking out to hurt their kids. Generally speaking, parents want what is best for their kids. They want to protect their kids. They want to avoid making damaging mistakes to, to not quote, that will quote-unquote not ruin their children. But even with that desire to not hurt their kids but do things for their benefit, we are sinners, are we not? And this passage reminds us that we will fail. And oftentimes, even when we know that we failed, we, we tend to justify our attitudes and our actions, and we don't own up to our own sin. Well, if, if my child wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't have been driven to respond X. If their personality wasn't like this, then I wouldn't be driven to respond in anger in such a manner. We justify our sin. And we need to remember that we as parents are sinners as well, and we're going to fall short. Now, if you notice, the text doesn't tell us how we might exasperate or provoke our children. But I think reason and experience and maybe examples that you can give really highlight some ways that, that we might exasperate our children. So these are not exhaustive, but I want to give you some ways that we as parents can, can um, exasperate our children. First of all, we can exasperate our children by excessive control. Excessive control. And notice I use that word excessive carefully. Because it isn't wrong for parents to have parameters around their kids. It isn't wrong for parents to impose guiding principles from the Word of God or even from your own family, some household parameters or rules upon your kids. It isn't wrong for us to want to provide for our children and protect our children, especially when they're younger. But we as parents can at times go too far and we can abuse this, right? We can abuse this. On the one hand, wisdom must be used then to not be a permissive parent. And we often focus on that. I don't want to be a permissive parent, so I need to have boundaries and parameters for my kids and principles for them to live by. But listen, that's only one side of it. We don't want to be permissive on the one hand, libertarian if you want to put it that way. But on the other hand, equally, wisdom must be used as parents to not be overprotective and overcontrolling, lest our children blow up. Oftentimes, what drives this is that some of us as parents have baggage from our pasts. Maybe you were raised in a particular way. Maybe there were certain experiences that you cannot use today to justify why you are the way that you are, but certainly exacerbate the problem and might dictate even some of you the way that you parent. Um, I remember um, even hearing about the uh, fear uh, that, that, that a particular woman was driven by. 
where she had been raised in, a, in an abusive home in her past and had had some certain experiences. And every single time that she went uh, in a, to a public place, like a Disneyland with her husband and her children, she would have a panic attack because of the fact that she was separated from one of her kids. And she began to get fearful and shake. And she went through counseling for a period of time, and the Lord delivered her by the grace of God from that particular thing. But part of what was interesting was to hear about her past, that some of what she experienced drove her to respond that way to certain situations with her own children. Beloved, whether it's in, with that kind of example or other things, other baggage that we carry into parenting, oftentimes we are, we are excessively controlling parents in a sinful way because we are, we are being driven by fear. Fear-based parenting leads to being overbearing and controlling with our children. Fear-based parenting um, believes the lie that environment guarantees the fact that your children will walk with the Lord. When in fact, that's a lie. Fear-based parenting believes that, that, or has this unhealthy focus that on mere external behavior that it's about outward conformity to, to morals. And morals are not bad, beloved. We should call our children to live within certain, to certain, uh, under, by certain morals and virtues, but not disconnected from the Lord Jesus Christ. Not without dealing with the heart. So fear-based parenting leads to, to, outward, to an emphasis on outward conformity in our kids, to, to morals that are devoid of heart, not dealing with the heart of a child, just the external behavior, and detached from Christ. The one who can actually empower them, save them, and allow them to be able to live a life that honors the Lord. Again, this doesn't mean that we don't protect our children that we don't have parameters for them. But it does mean this, beloved, that we recognize as parents living in the sin-cursed world that our children will inevitably be exposed to the world, the flesh, and the devil. They will, in the present or in the future. And so what is our responsibility as parents? To diligently and continually bring the truth of the Word of God to bear upon their hearts and lives. Recognizing that they are in the midst of a spiritual warfare battle. And it's about the, the, the battle lies in their heart. And the only thing that can transform their heart is the gospel. Amen? Secondly, we can exasperate our kids by holding them to unreasonable expectations. Unreasonable expectations. These can be social, educational, spiritual. You know, some parents, knowingly or unknowingly for the most part, try to, to sort of realize or achieve their goals and their dreams through their children now. Sports can be a temptation for dads, right? The little five-year-old, my little five-year-old son who is in AYSO, I want him to be able to like play like Ronaldo right now. World-class soccer player because I want him to get some great scholarships and one day he will have a full ride and maybe I'll watch him on TV at the World Cup. Dads can go off like that, imposing pressure on our kids with unreasonable expectations that way. Or the, or the, the, the mothers who seek to live their dreams or the things that they did not do as women through their daughters now. I read once the, the testimony of a, of a mom who wanted her daughter to, to win the, 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 the beauty contest. And she, she lived for this to the point where she drove her, her daughter to bulimic tendencies because of the fact that she was so wanting to please her mom. And so she was bulimic. 
Listen, we can do that, beloved, whether with the, in those kinds of categories or in others. Impose upon our kids unreasonable expectations. Ask yourself, do some heart searching right now or later. And ask yourself this, are my expectations rooted and grounded in biblical principles? And there might not be a chapter and verse, but can you give some reasons why biblically or even from your own experience, why you have those rules in motion or you have those expectations uh, upon your kids? And ask yourself, are these things that I want, I'm calling my kids to for the glory of God? Or are these really things that are driven by my selfish motivations? Something that I didn't get. Something that I want to see in them. Some proud uh, desire or goal that I have for myself rather than for the glory of God. And ask yourself this too. Do I give my children the opportunity to fail with, uh, with those expectations? Because it's not wrong, beloved. I would agree as a parent that it's good to have expectations for our kids that are rooted in the word of God. Even some of, based upon your experience and things that you've learned, that you've set before your children. But see, oftentimes they don't even have room to, to, to fail in those particular areas. Remember what, the, what Jesus said to the religious leaders in Matthew 23? Or about the religious leaders? That, that these religious leaders imposed heavy yokes upon, uh, their, 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 uh, upon people that they themselves weren't even willing to follow themselves. They imposed expectations and went beyond what stands written. In the same way, beloved, we could do that as well. We could be like religious leaders who are imposing expectations upon our kids and we're not willing to live them out ourselves. They're heavy yokes and they lead to exasperation in our kids. Thirdly, imposing unjust or arbitrary rules. That's a way to exasperate our kids. Unjust or arbitrary rules. All of us have the latitude within each household to have family rules. That's a good thing to have with parameters that cannot be broken. Otherwise, there are consequences. We should all have that. And each family will, will look different and apply biblical principles in a different manner. But oftentimes, beloved, we can use rules and impose them upon our kids in an arbitrary manner. Having no rhyme or reason for the rule that we have set before them. None. Or implementing or enforcing those rules in an unjust manner, which kind of connects to the issue of inconsistency in the use of these rules. Uh, you know, one minute, you might have a, a consequence for something that the child does, but the next minute, you don't. No consequence, even though they did the exact same thing. Or we might be partial in our enforcing of those rules. One child um, gets punished for a particular thing, and the other child gets away with it. And I'm not talking about the fact that we don't treat each child differently and might uh, apply a particular principle differently depending on the personality of the child. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a clear sin violation of something that you have given and yet one child gets away with it and the other one doesn't. Inconsistency. That drives children to exasperation, beloved. Listen, some of you having a background in sports... The worst, there's nothing worse than an inconsistent umpire behind the plate. I mean, the guy who's back there who calls one minute, he calls a strike in a particular area of the zone. And the next minute, the same pitch in the same location, he calls it a ball. There's nothing that provokes a, a hitter or a coach 
the coach runs out of the dugout at that point to get in the umpire's face because the worst thing is an inconsistent umpire. The batters will adjust if the, if the guy keeps calling the strike in the same area. But if, the, if they don't have any clue as to when he's going to be calling a strike or a ball, it frustrates those players. It's the same way in parenting, isn't it? With our kids. We frustrate our kids because we send mixed messages in the, in the enforcing of our rules or the arbitrariness of them. Fourth, constant favoritism. We can, we can uh, exasperate our kids through constant favoritism. Why can't you be like... I wish that you were like that other family's son. Right? Listen, it's good to point our kids to good examples in the home or, or in life. But we must be careful, right? You remember what happened with, with Isaac and Esau? Isaac favored Esau over Jacob, and Rebekah, the mom, favored Jacob over Esau. And even though ultimately, yes, it was ultimately within the, the plan of God that Jacob would be the one through whom he would now fulfill his promises, from a human standpoint, it didn't justify the favoritism um, shown by Isaac and Rebekah. And it led to conflict between the two brothers. Not only at that time, but for generations to come between their peoples because of favoritism expressed. No, beloved, our God doesn't play favorites, right? He's partial to no one. Romans 2.11 says, there is no partiality with God. Yes, that's being applied specifically to salvation and to the fact that all are sinners before Him. But in principle, it's something true about His character, that there is no partiality with God. And so what does He expect of us in all of our relationships in the church, as well as in parenting or in our marriage, that we would not be partial or play favorites that way? James 2.1 says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. See, for the believer, there is no place for favoritism. And in the home, even with parenting, this is destructive to a child's life. It's harmful to them. Fifth, abusive speech or abusive treatment can exasperate our kids. Abusive speech or abusive treatment we have seen already that on the positive side, the Bible calls us as parents to, to verbally instruct and even physically at appropriate ages discipline our, our children. But God's instruction or discipline is not vindictive, is it? It's not vindictive to get even. It's not impulsive, out of, out of control. It is not abusive discipline. God's discipline is, is loving, motivated by love. It is measured, it is controlled, and it is corrective for His glory and for our good to warn us not to go in a direction that is an affront to His glory and ultimately is going to harm us. That is discipline in the eyes of God and godly discipline for parenting. But oftentimes, beloved, we can resort to sinful treatment of our families and not practice God's kind of discipline. Be harmful with our words. Use condescending words to speak to our children, young or older. Tearing them down, bringing them down. You know what this is rooted in? This is rooted in, in the fact that we as parents sometimes forget the fact that our children are also made in the image of God. They're not inferior to us. They're not less than we are. They're not animals to be treated differently than humans. They're equal. They're made in the image of God. And are to be treated with, with dignity as human beings. Not only that, but we often forget about the fact that ch our children are a stewardship from God. 
that they don't belong to us. They are, we, 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 we've borrowed them from the Lord, so to speak. They are for our blessing and for us to train them and to be God's agents of training in their lives. And yet oftentimes we act as if we own them. And we treat them that way, beloved. And we speak harshly to them. Ephesians 4.29 warns against this. Let no unwholesome speech, rotten, corrupt word is the idea. Stenchy word or speech. Let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for edification, to build up, in other words. That builds up according to the need of the moment. It must be calculated speaking at the appropriate time that it may give grace to those who hear, that it may encourage and help the person who hears. That is true for all of our relationships, beloved, in the church, as well as for our marriages and for our parenting, that we would apply that. But doing the opposite abuse, abusive speech or treatment can exasperate our children. Conditional love. Conditional love can exasperate our kids or discourage them. Sending them the message that, that our love for them is conditional based upon their attitude or their behavior being what we want it to be. Sending them that message. Withholding words of affirmation or affection because we're angry at them because they're not acting the way that we think that they should act. Maybe even in a, in a way where it's true, they're not acting according to the Word of God. They're being disobedient legitimately. But we treat them accordingly. And we let them know in a vindictive kind of manner that because they're being that way, we're going to treat them accordingly. Listen, all of us do that. And we make excuses for withholding physical affection or, or tenderness or even loving kind actions because of their sin, right? And we use all kinds of excuses, don't we? Well, you know, it's not my personality to, to be affectionate toward my child. I'm not really a, a touchy-feely kind of guy. Or because um, we're angry or resentful or, un, or unforgiving toward them because of the fact that they didn't treat us the way that we wanted to be treated, so we justify it. I treated them in accordance with the way that they treated me. Listen, beloved, that's not God's kind of love, is it? Think about the way that God has loved us. What does 1 Corinthians 13 say about God's kind of love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's God's kind of love. Love of action. Love that is unconditional. A love that, is, that flows from a deep, profound affection for somebody that flesh itself out, fleshes itself out onto kind actions towards somebody. God calls us to practice that kind of love. How did God love us, beloved, in the most profound, beautiful way? It was by sending His Son Jesus into the world to die for sinners such as us. Don't ever forget that, that we sit in here and we see the best face of one another on Sunday mornings. We all put on, to some extent or another, certain masks. And other people love us based upon those masks that we put on. But when you think about the love of God, God knew you perfectly, all of your sinful, wretched thoughts and your motivations and your attitudes from within, and He still loved you in Christ Jesus. Unconditional love. And Jesus went to the cross as our substitute to be crushed for our sins, for our transgressions, for our iniquities, to pay the penalty and the punishment directed at us for our sins, so that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, beloved. Such is the love of God. 
And God calls us as parents to, to emulate that kind of love to some, in some way, shape, or form, even with our vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators, be, imitators of me as God, uh, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Walk in love. Imitating the love of God. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy can exasperate our children or discourage them as well. We can exasperate them by living a contradictory lifestyle. A do as I say, not as I do type of mentality and lifestyle. Listen, you want to exasperate your kid? Tell them, respect your mother or respect your father, but disrespect them yourself. Be kind to others. Be kind to your siblings. Be kind to your mom. Be kind to your dad. But you are not kind yourself. Tell them, don't be lazy. But you are known for your laziness. You, as soon as you get home, want to be a couch potato. You have a sense of self-entitlement. You're being lazy and you're calling them not to be lazy. You want to exasperate or discourage your kids? Tell them to control their social media, but all they ever see is the top of your head. Looking down at your iPhone or your iPad or the back of your head looking at the computer on Facebook all day long or on Instagram. And yet we're telling our kids, have control with social media. You want to exasperate your kids? Tell them, serve others. But all they ever see is you being selfish, self-preoccupied, self-consumed. Tell them to read their Bibles and be people who pursue um, knowing God by means of His Word, but never read the Bible yourself. Never pray yourself. Never lead in prayer. Tell them, be devoted to God's people and to the church, to the bride of Christ. But you set up all kinds of priorities above the church, the bride of Christ. And you justify it because you're just a busy person. What messages are we sending to our kids, beloved, that the bride of Christ is under all of the priorities that we set above it? That the church isn't worth our time and our resources. See, we can do this. Watch your mouth, kid. Watch the way that you talk. But all they ever do is hear us, badmouth people in the context of our home, slander other people, believers or unbelievers, gossip about people, and that's what they've grown up hearing, or that's what they hear. And yet we're telling them, be careful with your mouth. See, our example speaks louder than words, right? Pastor John MacArthur has said, example is the most powerful rhetoric, the most powerful persuasion. Our kids need to see us living these things out. Even within our struggles, beloved, in our own sins, even when we are broken before them and confess our sin to them that we've blown it in an area. All of these, beloved, can lead to, to anger in the heart and life of a child on the one hand, or on the other hand, according to Colossians 3.21, it can lead to discouragement, to a, a broken spirit uh, in an unhealthy, negative way, to a, a child being disheartened, being in despair as opposed to being hopeful that he or she can, can change and, and, can, and things can, can, the trajectory of their life can go in a good direction, in a positive direction. You know what I get from this? Warning that it matters to God not just what I do as a parent, but also how I do it. How I do it. But see, left to myself, and you left to yourself, our hearts deceive us as parents. Our hearts lie to us. 
we fail to humble ourselves because we begin to compare ourselves to other people. And, hey, I'm not as bad in, in comparison to those parents. They're permissive. I'm not. Or they're too controlling. I'm not. I guess you're the perfect balance then. We begin to do that and we excuse our sin. Or, hey, they made me speak or act that way. If they wouldn't act that way, then it wouldn't cause me to react that way. Listen to me. It doesn't matter what anybody does to you. Ultimately, you are responsible for your sin before the Lord. You and I are responsible, even when others sin against us, to follow the example of Christ that though treated unjustly, he did not revile in return, right? So we use excuses, beloved. We use excuses. All of those excuses and any others that you can come up with are rooted in in self-destructive pride. Pride. It's the opposite of humility. Which God commands in James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The idea there is God stands in battle array as as an ultimate warrior against you if you're a proud person. He stands in battle array against you if you're proud. But he gives grace to you if you humble yourself. If you are humble. James 4.10 Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So the pathway to Christ-exalting change is humble repentance. For us to humble ourselves before God and, and before others. And beloved, listen, do some heart searching right now and this week. Ask yourself, ask yourself in a moment of silence before the Lord. Open up God's word and say, Lord, speak to me right now about the way that I'm doing that toward others. How am I exasperating or causing others to be discouraged beginning with my household? You know what? Ask your spouse. Honey, what do I do that exasperates you? What do I do that discourages you? Kids, what do I do? What what are my tendencies, knowingly or unknowingly as your dad, that cause you to to fear or to be discouraged or or to feel exasperated? What are those things? And then be quiet and listen. Be quiet and listen, beloved. Don't defend yourself. Don't justify yourself. We do this, and we should do this in every relationship that we have. Asking other people, what is it that we're doing? What is it that I do to anger or discourage you? How can I be more of an instrument of edification in your life? You know what else we need to do? Not only humble ourselves, but we need to check our parenting goals. Check your parenting goals. Ask yourself, what is my goal in my dealings with my kids as I confront issues with my child, young or old? What are my goals? What am I trying to achieve? Am I trying to to just get them to submit to me under my authority? They need to arrange themselves because God says so? Is it I need to crush them or discourage them so that they're broken before me and now they they don't even talk back anymore? Is your goal to, to render them useless? To drive them away? None of us, beloved, would say that any of these goals are even remotely close to what we want in parenting, right? And yet, we live and we treat our kids in such a way that manifest that that we are after those kinds of sinful goals in the way that we treat them. No. My goal as a parent is to glorify God and be a faithful parent who wants to help my child. I want to help my child and I want to teach them what it means to know and to love and to serve Jesus. I want to glorify God by being a faithful parent, 
bringing them before Christ daily, informally and formally in the context of relationship with them. That's my goal. And if that's my goal, then my methodology will, will lead to, to, to those goals rather than divert away from those goals and drive my kids away from me. Well, we've seen the seriousness of the warning. And now I want us to just focus for a few minutes on the application of the warning. The application of the warning. I want to give us some practical guiding principles okay, that we can uh, implement um, that might, might be helpful for us to not exasperate our children or to discourage them. First of all, practice gospel-saturated parenting. Go back and listen to the message from last week, in particular the last 15-20 minutes. And listen to the point of that last 20 minutes was to bring before us the reality that the heart is the problem. And the solution to the, to the heart is the gospel in the hands of the Spirit of God. Transforming the heart of a child. And thus we as parents recognize that we are agents who are to be bringing the gospel to bear to our children, beloved. Gospel-saturated parenting. We recognize that it's the gospel that's ultimately going to change them. And you know what gospel-saturated parenting understands then? That the issues are not directly personal against you. That it's ultimately a spiritual warfare in the heart of a child, young or older. See, so many of our problems are that we take things personally from our kids and it becomes about us. And yes, many times we get run over standing in the middle of them and God, so to speak. But ultimately, beloved, their problem is not against us. It is against the Lord. It's a spiritual problem. And gospel-saturated parents understand that. Gospel-saturated parents understand that, that we are modeling before our kids even how to resolve conflict in the context of the home. Our kids are watching, beloved. Our kids are watching that our, our homes are not perfect homes and we should not pretend that they are, but we should come before them and say, guys, we are not perfect people in this house, but we are going to address the issues and the problems that we have in a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting manner. So let's resolve conflict in a godly way and practice biblical forgiveness and extending biblical forgiveness. Gospel-saturated parenting works hard at conflict resolution within the context of the home and outside of that so that we have a, we're giving our kids a picture of the gospel of how to resolve conflict. Listen to C.S. Lewis on forgiveness. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, how can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, and he, what he means by that in the gospel, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse, it means to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. We are put in a family to learn how much we are forgiven by God and how to forgive one another. Our children will need to know how to forgive the rest of their lives. God forbid that we should teach them how to drive, but not how to forgive, end quote. Gospel-saturated parenting, beloved, practices biblical forgiveness in the home. Secondly, practice long-term parenting. Remember that this is a long-term process. This is especially 
important for us to remember, for those of us who want our kids to come to know Christ. We want that monumental event to happen and we can become so fixated upon it that we forget that after that they're still going to live the rest of their lives too. Some of you know this. You've raised children who are walking with the Lord. Have you stopped parenting? You're still parenting them, right? To some extent or another, they're still maturing and growing in Christ. So it's a long-term process, even beyond coming to faith in Christ, beloved. Even beyond that, all of us in here who are believers can attest to that. Were the problems solved in your life the moment you came to know Jesus? (laughs) Some of you are laughing, you know, right? We're still a work in process. So it is with our kids, but oftentimes we want a quick fix, a one-time event, and we get frustrated because we're not getting the results that we want. We need to see the big picture, that it's a long-term process. And that allows us, by the grace of God, to be able to be patient and to seek the grace of God and, and be dependent upon Him and say, Lord, I know that this is, we're in this thing for the long haul. Give me the grace to persevere. Thirdly, cultivate relationship. Cultivate relationship. Do your children know that you enjoy them and that you love them? Do they believe that, that you are drenched with Psalm 127 and 128? That children are a heritage from the Lord. That they're a gift, a reward. A fruit of the womb is a reward to parents. That, that children are a blessing from a good God for our blessing and so that we might train them as God's agents. Do your, parents know, do, do your children know that you cherish them and you love them and you want a relationship with them? That you want to spend time with them? I remember one older godly mentor telling me this, Kempis, enjoy your kids. You want to know a great piece of, piece of advice? He said, enjoy your kids, especially when they are young. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. Another person once told me, don't make mountains out of molehills. Don't die on every hill. Some of you who are grandparents can teach us so many things about this, right? You look back at your own parenting and you can teach us volumes about, you shouldn't make that such a big deal. Later on in life, they kind of, Right? But when we're younger, we're so proud and arrogant and we think we we have to have our kids be perfect in every area of life. And we forget about dealing with the heart attitude and the affections of the heart. Everything is a big deal, right? At the age of two, they need to be able to to know the Westminster Catechism, right? (laughs) Do you enjoy your kids and do they know this? Do you spend time with them often? Do you pursue a relationship with them? Fourth, last two, be mindful of the importance of the church. Be mindful of the importance of the church. I heard a great quote the other day in one of our memorial services. It takes a church to raise a child. It takes a church to raise a child. You know, none of us would say that we don't need anybody else. But you know what? We live oftentimes in parent as if it is all up to us. And we isolate ourselves and try to do things alone, either because we're afraid to ask or we're frankly self-righteous. And we think we know better than everybody else around us. We're going to do a good job with our own kids. But the truth is, beloved, none of us are self-sufficient. None of us are all-knowing. The fact that you're responsible to invest into your kids, first and foremost in the context of the home, doesn't mean that you don't need anybody else. And you're arrogant if you think that way. You're proud if you do. Humility says, no, I need the church. I'm going to invite others' input into my life who are going to speak to me about a parent and help me be a well-rounded parent. I'm going to invite the input of others into my wife's life, of others into my kid's life, young and older. 
We're going to be around other families who are further along than we are because we need to learn from them. The importance of the church and the importance of discipleship, beloved, is so key. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Proverbs 12.15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 11.14, Where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Parents, we need the input of others. Others become the, can become a healthy barometer of how we're doing. Every single one of us needs discipleship, you see. And then finally, remember your identity in Christ. Remember your identity in Christ. Both in my own personal life, and I can tell you from much counseling that I've done over the years, I can tell you that parents are very self-condemning people. Because we want what is best for our kids. And we believe that we're many times in a, unknowingly the solution to our kids. And so when they make mistakes or they sin, we put all of the blame on us. And while we've talked about the fact that we should own up to our own sin, beloved, listen, ultimately, you're, you are called to be a faithful parent before the Lord. Faithfulness. The heart is up to God. He is the one that needs to do the change in, your, in, the, in the life of your child. You be faithful. And remember that when your kids are not doing well, your relationship with the Lord is secure. Romans 5.1, meditate on this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. Justified, declared righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, because I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I am forgiven. Nothing, no mistake that I make in parenting will separate me from the love of God. Romans 5, 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Romans 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even parenting mistakes and parenting sins. We are secure in Jesus Christ, beloved. What? We need to remember this. We need to remember our identity in Christ. Oh, may God help us, beloved, to be loving, faithful parents who diligently invest into the lives of our kids by the power that the Lord provides. Amen? Let me pray for us, and my brother will come up for a closing song. Father, oh Lord, we need you every single day. When we look at these truths, we are driven to make the statement, who is adequate for these things? But thanks be to you, Lord, who always leads us in triumph in Christ Jesus. So help us, Lord, to confess our sins, to be broken before our families and our kids even. And help us to remember that in Christ, we always have hope. Never do we despair in Jesus Christ. So, Father, may we find renewed strength today to be the parents that you've called us to be, to exalt Jesus in our instruction and in our example, in all that we do in Christ's name. Amen.